Howdy Duty Time. What the hell is going on, everybody? Welcome back for another episode of Nick's Nonfiction Only AN, and we are absolutely killing it. Thank you guys for checking out this specimen of a show that is growing rapidly into a piping hot, monstrous success of an organism living on YouTube. Growing tentacles out through hairy shit at t -t 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 10k followers this month. Thank you, everybody out there. We're going to be touching on that. But for the month of August, the one year anniversary of my stand up comedy, what you could call career, my open micing career. I started August 6th of 2018 out at the Lion's Lair here in Denver on Dirty Old Colfax Ave. I'll be sharing all my stand up stories during today's show because we are going over world famous comedian and our first female author, Miss Joan Rivers. Enter talking. This is her biography. It's going to be much like Mr. Bourdain's tale, which we had back in June, which fucking killed it. A lot of people love Anthony Bourdain, and it's getting people interested in the show. I'll, I'll let you guys behind the curtain. There's a reason Nick's Nonfiction is a different topic or genre every month. We gotta get out there. We're blasting this shit all over the internet. And thank you, newcomers. You got a seasoned talk show host right here. My name is Nick Muniz, 23-year-old kid, figuring out life just like you guys, but been speaking into microphones throughout my college campus for a few years now, and now <laughs> getting my five minutes a night out on the streets of Denver. So thank you guys for finding the show. This is what we like to do here. We like to talk about truth. We like to make sillies. And every other month, we're having a fun time like this, and then we go zeep again. We go deep Sharik, deep Gupta, deep Patel again. We go deep every other month talking about hard science conspiracy politics and facts and that mamma mia is a beautiful success for a show that we call mixed not fiction and so we have to touch on this because it has been three years in the making <laughs> and tons of probably blood definitely sweat and maybe tears of joy have gone into my meme page, Harry Shit, three years in the making, and we have reached 10,000 followers. It is now a business account, <laughs> whatever that means. I could post my YouTube handle straight up on the bio. This show will be coming just as fun of a community as that comment section over on Harry Shit. I'll take a minute to preach on the 10K. This is why I love and I'm trying to get into stand-up. It's just like the meme-verse it's just mastering a skill and i've dm'd like other big meme accounts smaller meme accounts dm me it's just people that have been in the hustle for a longer time and they're gaining a bigger following so it's been three years you think it's time to sell right time to celebrate this is when the real work begins as you see it's like when you unlock a new level in a video game it gets friggin harder but it's more fun because it's a new level and you get to figure it out <laughs> So there's new perks to the level, but there's also a shitload more responsibility. With memes, it's just friggin' updating bios and consistent stories I'm gonna have to do, because that's how you get promoted through these algorithms, it seems like. Like, sometimes my pictures get enough exposure where 30,000 people like them. Three times the amount that even follow me. I don't put hashtags on any of my pictures. It's farm the table, bitch. You're getting your laugh straight up. No bullshit marketing. <laughs> but... It seems when I'm putting up constant stories, somehow, my pictures get more exposure. Fucking, we're figuring it out together. I'm exposing Instagram's back alleys to all you users out there. 
Users is a great term, too, because this shite is a drug. They're measuring how much endorphins you should get per scroll before they start flooding you with ads and you close it. And then you need a smoke break. You need to go out and check Instagram again. They know, man. <laughs> Why am I trashing my leg, man? <laughs> Harry, shit, 10,000 followers. We're going to a million. We're going to a billion. We're going to a trillion. A Googleplex. Thank you guys for being a part of it. It might be a business account. Nothing's going to change. You're getting the old classic memes formats that have been around for years. You're getting political sauce. You're getting <laughs> my slowly developing Photoshop skills. So thank you guys for being a part of it. It feels good to make something that other people think is funny as well. And that's the point of this show. Anything else before we get into Mrs. Rivers' stories? The friggin' Democratic primaries just happened. That was probably the most important thing. Quote, unquote, important. It was a friggin' circus. You already know my opinion on this. It was just like a competition to show how much of a victim each person was and offering things that don't and cannot ever exist. Like, that. <laughs> you remember that Mayor Joe guy? He offered abortions for men because the curator was like, oh, so um, how are we going to fund transsexual abortions? <laughs> that's like a word combo punch that he's trying to throw at the guy transsexual abortion what does that even mean so this guy said he was gonna fund abortions for men who don't have wombs we'll pay for the sex change that's already in the four trillion dollar budget <laughs> but you can't keep throwing money at things that aren't gonna exist and can never exist dude it was a joke the whole thing was like american idol man it just didn't matter <laughs> and the obvious winner I don't like the guy, was Donald Trump with a one-word tweet. Boring. That was it. That's all he said. And he was right. That shit was a waste of time. There were fucking nine people on stage talking over each other, and now it's promoted to interrupt each other and not try to get an articulate point about how you are going to run this nation and my paycheck every two weeks. It's just turned into a joke now. <laughs> and then we also had the 4th of July. We take it seriously out here in Colorado. You could buy freaking fireworks in the middle of the city. That's that's not allowed. That's not allowed anywhere else in the nation. It's pretty flat, though. Denver, it's right where the prairies meet the Rocky Mountain Range. So it's like a foothill city, basically. And so if you're up in the Flatirons, or if you literally just go up to the top of a parking deck, you could see 20 fireworks shows going down. It hailed at like 9 p.m. exactly. Hailed for like five minutes. <laughs> People threw their mattresses over their windshields. And then the show goes on. That's the 4th of July in Rado. 4th of July was always my favorite, though. It's about day drinking, and the best thing is grilling a burger and having a beer. I don't know why th those things go better together than being drunk already and having pizza. Trust me. Spatula in one hand, boiga in another. You'll never taste anything better. <laughs> East Coast, it was about just getting, like, belligerently wasted and fighting your old high school rivals under the fireworks on your alma mater's football field dude it was a shit show and i honestly can't tell what i prefer that'll bring us to augustus gloop august our show and our about the author mrs joan rivers and her book enter talking joan rivers was born 
1933 and then died in 2014 if you didn't hear the news yes joan has came and gone but she lived for 81 years an eventful 81 years her real name spoiler joan malinsky Polak. yes this book in particular enter talking is from 1986 <laughs> for the rest of the show, it's probably going to be nails on a chalkboard for some people because I have a Jersey accent and I'm going to say enter talking. Anyway, Joan wrote this in 1986 and she was a bit of an author. She like switched over into writing like coffee table gag joke books to give to people. But this is about her friggin' life's work and her career and how she got from point A to point one, two, three, four million to point Z. There's no straight line in these entertainment careers, it seems like. The whole friggin' book is about her, so I'm not gonna go into her background too much right now. In the 50s, she was from Brooklyn, so in her 20s, she got to go to the Catskills, which is one of the birthplaces of stand-up comedy, guys on a stage making people laugh in real time. She got to see, like, Abbott and Costello, those greats, the people that, who's on first? You're on second. You're on where? And Joan was out there trying to be a participant on stage. She had some stories about successfully getting up and being made fun of and feeling like she was the one getting the laughs and getting that viral dose of whatever it is that makes you go, this needs to happen again tomorrow night better. There's like one or two things I feel like if you take someone to an open mic, they friggin' this is the new hustle. Or they fucking look at you like a foreign animal and are like, what are you doing? doing dude stop save yourself <laughs> and so um, that's the perfect recipe joan got chemical release at a young age that threw her neurochemistry out of balance for the rest of her upbringing quite a healthy start back in the catskills they were doing those like silent film bits where two guys would tap you on the shoulder and then you would turn around and one would slap you in the face it's all while like a piano's going and they have a slide whistle playing and then the other guy pants you and then the other guy pulls them back up <laughs> and you could call that shit whatever you want it's obviously not stand-up comedy they're not writing anything down they're not making any jokes i mean they i guarantee they have stage directions but there is a room laughing in front of their faces on a stage whatever you want to call it improv stand up if it's rehearsed if it's not funny is funny and fucking laughter as i said before is an involuntary response so get up there it's gonna happen or it's not man some nights you're gonna make it happen like you're a wizard you're not gonna know what's happening and you're gonna be able to dial that in maybe for a week and man People still try some stuff like this. There's some comedians, I'm not, not going to be dropping names or any shit throughout the show, like Kafkaesque people who are trying out some weird artistic ways to make the room feel uncomfortable, and after a certain amount of time, it's funny. Like, remember the... Remember the family guy bit where he friggin' falls in front of the house and for literally three minutes of airtime on an episode, he's huddled over, hugging his knee, going... And it's not funny. For two or three times, you're pissed off. And then the fourth time, you fucking die. You're like, this is actually hilarious. And some people somehow pull this off. You don't know why it's funny. It's walking a tightrope. A lot of times it doesn't work, you see. I don't try a lot of this shit. I've learned to use silence, though. That's the biggest... <laughs> 
it can be your biggest friend if you already have control of the audience. But if you're trying to pull some funky, look at me, I'm the strange kid in the room shit, you're going to lose people's attention. That's what, Why do you think I fucking scream into the mic over this show? You guys are in an office, you're in the gym, you're out in a park or doing some shit. <laughs> There's a show going on, baby. It's going on right now. You got to always... It's what's worked for me so far. Like people will do not just that artsy stuff but like hip-hop dances to like remixes oh man that's a long walk off stage when you have to carry a fucking boom box with you and everybody's staring and then the mc gets to go back up and be like well that was five minutes of all of our night so let's move on <laughs> and then you hope to god you're the next person on the list that night <laughs> that'll be an easy follow <laughs> What about Joan? Joan got to see, like, I'm saying, at these fucking open mics, you're going to see people pretend to give birth on stage, people scream rape at the top of their lungs, and people sling good jokes. They say the higher levels you get, it's like being at a better university. You're around smarter people, you get better yourself at actual stand-up comedy, but there are some of these, like, alt rooms and shit. Like, I'm in the back of bookstores. You're going to see crazy stuff. And Joan was up in the Catskills seeing guys freaking pants each other and slap audience members on the back of the head and take their shoes off. It was a good diversified education she was getting. And then in the 60s, which was her 30s, she was doing some Broadway. She fell more towards in love with comedy toward the end of her 30s because she realized the realness of a comedy show. It's not a theater show that you put on 60 times in a row and then you never do it again. But it's good for other things, like she went into the second city in Chicago after that, which is like the improv schools, you're working in a comedy team, and those are the guys that succeed, those are all the SNL people like Will Ferrell, Amy Poehler, and all that, just like in any other starting a business if you have like more rich dudes, <laughs> you have more equity to start a business, if you have more hardworking funny, it's going to get you guys an empire like look at uh duo comedy podcasts those are some of the top holding spots on the comedy podcast charts and those people make a fucking living off of talking jokes the market's only getting bigger for this type of thing <laughs> joan was way ahead in the market in the 60s she was at second city in chicago some of her teachers were in like the chevy chase era so even back further, like that National Lampoon gang and the Belushi and the Animal House gang, all those people were in comedy troops. And if you know these names, I didn't. She knew Mike Nichols, Elaine May, Alan Arkin. So some bigger names, too, that Elaine was in the aura of. In the 70s, she was 40. She was an established comic making real money. She was on the road. And, you know, very few open micers ever get to this level. She got even higher than that. She made it to the late night circuit. She was on all the TV shows. This is why she's a huge name in Hollywood. And she was able to write a book. Especially because this was in the age she was doing Letterman, Johnny Carson. She was a monster touring act for about a decade. And you can see now, like I'm saying, comedy is growing. It's a new thing. It's less than like 150 years old. There are now handfuls of comedians who are doing stadium-wide tours for years upon years in the 80s joan is 50 she's a regular on leno and conan and is like a figure on the mount rushmore the hills of hollywood she's one of those heads we just went through her whole life as they say you gotta trust the process decade by decade 
Joan was able to navigate the murky waters by doing this, and she kept with it. It's a marathon, man. I've said it before, some of the funniest people in the world will never have the balls to get on a stage. This comedy thing is a marathon. There's different reasons to respect the guy that gets really drunk and says funny things and the guy who's out there hustling and successfully getting strangers to laugh every single night. So then Joan hides in the Hollywood Hills pretty much after that. She wrote those gimmick books I was talking about. One of them was called Still Talking after Enter Talking. Another one was called Bouncing Back. Okay, just an elderly lady clawing back at the limelight, it seems, at that point. <laughs> and then in 2019, it was a book. Obviously, I'm not, I don't feel bad saying that. Her book was called Men Are Stupid. They Like Big Boobs. I mean, it's true. But she's not dropping any comedic wisdom anymore like she was back here in Enter Talking. This was her author sweet spot, as I've curated for the show for us, as always. We're almost done here with the about the author, just to give you a better feel for who Joan is. Her comedy class, like who she grew up with, who she graduated into the touring realm with, was Roseanne Barr, Rosie O'Donnell, Ellen DeGeneres, who at the time were all shock comedians. You're saying, who, Ellen DeGeneres? She's the goody-two-shoes Disney comedian now. She was a lesbian in the 80s. She was talking about eating muffin and all that type of stuff. Joan is more of the satirical Jew, like I describe her as the drunk mom at the dinner table. <laughs> it was so drunk now she doesn't know when she's whispering. And she goes, have you ever noticed how black people... And she thinks she's just mouthing the words black people. <laughs> That's some Joan type of thing to do. She was saying things that were getting people to say, a woman shouldn't be talking like this, it's the 50s. Like, comedy is all about timing. A joke has to hit the friggin' mark. And literally, your jokes have to be the right time for the decade. So maybe I'm a little ahead of my time talking about truth and all that type of stuff. But, like, Ellen was talking about lesbian in the 80s. And that's when it was just edgy enough. And now you see a lot of open micers that aren't getting paid to do comedy because they're talking about being lesbian just like the other 20 open micers that are going up after them. It's not an original thought anymore. <laughs> Maybe try some of your other material if you're going up after a girl who just talked about the same thing as you're about to. Timing. And then you see she grew up with Rosie O'Donnell, who is another shyster. She's getting fucking bitched out by the leader of the free world. Is that not a dream of every comedian to have the president tweet at you? Rosie O'Donnell, you're fat and irrelevant. Nobody cares about you anymore. <laughs> You win, Rosie. You are you are still there on some sort of level. You have staying power. <laughs> and then there's Roseanne Barr, who's freaking taking Ambien and posting racist tweets on Twitter. So all these people were being crazy till the end, Joan including, writing about how men are stupid. So I guess I just found a theme throughout the about the author. She found that staying power just like the other people. And now people were influenced by Joan. So Joan's living on. She's living through other comedians. She's being part of their taste. How does it say? Whatever. She freaking influenced them. Sarah Silverman, Billy Crystal, Jeff Ross, John Stewart, Louis C.K. All of them said they grew up on some of Joan Rivers' comedy. In high school, I had freaking Daniel Tosh's comedy channel on repeat. I heard so many of his freaking hours over and over and over and i did a fucking 600 person 
comedy set with two of my buddies. That was my first time ever telling jokes on stage. I'll get into that today, I'm, I'm sure, at some point. I was listening to a little bit too much Daniel Tosh. We went up there and we ripped into the establishment. We talked about how fucking the budget reports are more slippery than the black ice that our school buses were fucking crashing over and shit. We had some good bits in there (laughs) about how our janitor, who recently got fired for getting involved in a fight, we shat on him for not doing any work. We went up there and just promoted anarchy, man. We trashed the other high school. That's what fucking comedy is about that's what roseanne barb ellen degeneres <laughs> rosie o'donnell and our girl joan rivers they started young they were doing it their whole life you gotta stir the pot you gotta show people truth and you gotta be out there hustling so let's get into this comedic journey which is enter talking by joan rivers 16 chapter book so let's start cooking from the beginning chapter one who is that stupid? Point of this chapter. Who is stupid enough to get on a stage with nothing? You have no guitar or piano or f- fancy dances or <laughs> magic tricks or out. You can't say I have to go to the bathroom, man. You have to make a room of strangers laugh for five minutes while there are lights blinding you. You can't see most of their faces, but you can feel all of their white irises piercing you. <laughs> and level up. I don't know about this. Jonas saying even when you get to a thousand people in the audience, 10% of people still aren't going to like you. That is a hundred strangers in a confined space with you who hate your guts. Who are saying, who the fuck is this guy on stage? I'm funnier than this guy. Who the hell is he? Why Why does he get to talk into that special electric cock? <laughs> There's going to be a hundred people with that going through their mind when you're in a big enough room. Throughout the chapter, Joan goes on to say, why do people do this and how? How? I'm still figuring it out. Got a little taste. We got some fucking moves, baby. <laughs> Juke jive. Hit him with a ha-ha here. Talking about that hundred room thing, how people are always going to hate you. I mean, I've been seeing this three years. We just celebrated the meme page. The amount of hate online just goes up exponentially because people are anonymous. But I've been heckled before on stage. That takes some balls. I don't think I've ever been heckled by a sober person. Honestly, like the people that fucking stand up to interrupt a live show, you're not all there. What do you have to say? Because if I said, here, get up here, fucko, come tell a joke, you'd probably shit yourself. But now, if you know anything about literally live reporting or stand-up comedy, you never give the microphone away. That's the power. My go-to has been like... You look like you have cheap mirrors. Did you get that haircut from a veterinarian? I don't know if this is, like, cheap because I'm fucking good-looking, so calling people ugly is... It gets a laugh. I don't give a fuck, man. It's funny. It gets a laugh. And so I guess I need more drunk assholes to fucking come out to shows or be in not as nice of of a city as Denver is. People are just high and giggling at your jokes in the back. (laughs) Anyway, you gotta kinda like confrontation to put yourself in these situations. You gotta be stupid to get on stage. The fact that you're all out at 11pm, some of you have been up for like 20 hours at that point, you're collectively microdosing on the sleep chemicals that are dripping into your brain. I think most of these degenerate comics are slumbering for fucking hours at a time during the day, it seems. (laughs) 
But this is another just crazy aspect of it. It's at the wee hours of the night. That is the best time to tell jokes. Like I was saying the other month about fucking sleepovers. That was the best time to get your friends rolling with laughter. And that's the best thing you could try to describe it as. Like trying to make your friend laugh at the sleepover. And then he's dying. And then your other friend sees this. And it's a viral feeling. They don't know why they laugh. But then they realize, oh damn, this is the funniest thing I've ever been a part of. And you get that feeling every single night. So yeah, it is a stupid thing to do with some of the craziest human rewards that you'll ever feel. So why do people do it? Who is this stupid? Joan says because in her long life of 81 years, she saw some world wars. She saw the rise and fall of communism. In her long life, the most memorable moments are being on stage. Just like I've been saying, emotions are the secret sauce of memory. And your brain is feeling every emotion it has ever felt. And it is relaying that at a thousand times per minute onto the audience in hopefully what comes out as a beautiful picture you're painting i'm not going to be a fruit the entire show hopefully but you got to try to paint a pretty picture joan saying up front maybe people do it for the memories another big one joan throws up here a lot of people get into it because they are delusional there's no way for me to do this without being rude but fucking man put a recorder in your pocket if you're going to do an open mic people have been up there for years at a time and they don't know that they've never gotten a laugh you gotta fucking listen delusion is one of the biggest motivators in this industry recording your sets helps you see people bringing friends and family to show and bombing and it's and then they walk off stage and they give everyone hugs and the fucking friends and family are looking around like what the hell <laughs> we we need to get you out of here they're like busing them in the car straight to rehab there's craziness like people who get recently divorced there's a lot of one-offs so i've been in the scene for about a year I've seen a million versions of myself go on the stage to have never be seen again. It's around, it's like the same fucking 30 kids you see at every open mic. That's the Denver scene. And I imagine for every million people in the city, you multiply that times 30 or so. That's, there's your comedy scenes. Open mics are a den for the crazy. That's what Joan should have just said here. Yeah, that's why people start comedy. They're crazy. You got to be crazy to get into this thing. You got to be crazy to put yourself in that situation where you think... I'm going to come out on top here. You're going into a fight. It's a mental fight of some sort. You're fucking trying to make somebody laugh. That's a puzzle. You're doing a puzzle live on stage in front of people. And yeah, it's a lot of fucking writing. So these crazy people, the delusional people, that you see they do the same set for weeks on weeks on weeks on weeks to the same comics every night, every night, every night. Depending on the mic that you're at, you might be just performing to comics. So you can't do the same set. That's when you try to riff in the moment. Try to get your real comic legs going. That's when it doesn't count. An open mic literally doesn't count. It's like going to do a workout at the gym. You could go there. I've seen people do this at my gym and drink a Coca-Cola while sitting on the leg press machine while I'm trying to get a workout in. People do that. People just go up at the open mic and vent into a microphone. People go there and try to work on their sets. It's a crazy level, man. It's like a free city gym. (laughs) So that's who you could expect to see. Let's finish up chapter one here about her childhood. She had two Russian parents who would beat the piss out of her. She had... It's a novel, dude. If you want to go friggin' imagine Joan's writings about her female life in the 1980s, you can go read this book. I was reading it for the bits about 
her valuable experience on stage. I didn't really care about this her, her drama. And you'll see at the end of the book, she basically gave up comedy as soon as she got married. So I was like, fuck this girl. You were just doing this as a sail, as a hang glider until you found your husband. <laughs> I have a little internal beef with Joan. So that's going to be coming out throughout part of the show. My apologies. She's a Russian Jew. Her name's not Braversky, though. It was... Like, I, I told you, she did that switcheroo. She's Malinsky. She pulled the old Native American switcheroo, the Elizabeth Warren. That bitch was in that debate. They, why didn't they ask her that question? Every single person in the audience was wondering, ask her why she lied about being a Native American. But no, they were giving her softballs. What do you think about women empowerment? Home run. I love women. Yeah, well, crowd goes wild. Cool. Let's fucking cheer for somebody we don't know anything about. I'm about to pull a Warren, man. A lot of people use st fake stage names. I'd be like Nick Running Creek. I usually go by Seymour Sluts Butts or Fillmore Cooter. <laughs> we what? What are the classics? Fucking Bend Over Pizza Hut. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Joan had a Russian name. She made a stage name to help herself out, but she said those Russian parents would beat her, and she thinks that made her funny. I don't know why that's a common theme with comedians. I don't know if I agree with it. There are a lot of funny people who were not beaten in infanthood. Then again, this was written in the 80s, so she probably bought it up like it was groundbreaking. <laughs> you can imagine all the moms with their perms getting together for their Sunday book clubs. All right, Janice and Maurice, listen up. Joan is saying that her parents beat her. So I'm thinking that it wasn't good for her emotional well-being for a full-grown adult to lash out on an undeveloped girl. That is great intuition there, 80s moms and Joan. Get ahead of your time. They were dirt-poor Russians, so the dad would just, like, splurge on track suits and swag and overbearing cologne and fucking gold chains and all that foreign stuff. She said her dad was always behind on debts, and then the mom was pissed off because then the mom couldn't buy her own gold chains. So while it was hard on her, she said her parents were still tender and loving at times. Classic push-and-pull emotional abuse. Some positive things about that traditional upbringing. She was taught traditional female values. <laughs> Why did I say that? Now I'm a fucking misogynist. Uh, she was taught how a wife should be dressed and groomed for her husband. <laughs> her and her sisters were expected to have flawless manners. Hey, I bet that helped her get hitched and then get out of the freaking comedy grind. So there, you got what you wanted, Joan, by being a woman. But she said this helped her rebel in her later years, being repressed in her earlier years. Oh, are you Sigmund Freud? Oof. Her mom died at 76. Sorry, Joan, laying in a little hard. So she did regret the period of sexual promiscuity to spite the mom, but <laughs> I bet you had fun when you were doing it. That Now you regret it just because mommy's gone. Live by your word. Her family had a couple polio scares growing up. Remember, this was like the 50s. So Joan is a survivor. She was from a different era, so it's pretty cool to see that she was doing this whole stand-up thing when people were wearing white-collar black tie everywhere. It was a different world. Her dad went on to be some sort of like a little nurse, and her dad was a really social guy, and patients then would love him. So Joan said that's where she got her chops, but the guy was barely ever home, so that must have also <laughs> added into her sexual promiscuity. She had a bitchy mom and her dad that was never there. Her immigrant parents were able to see her dream come to life, which I guess is all they wanted. 
So why do people get up there? <laughs> a meaty chapter one. You got to be hungry for something. Whether it's the attention or success down the road or just social peacocking you needed to get outside for a night. If you stick it through the entire journey, you will find out why you got into it. And usually those people that make it to the end were in it for some sort of success. They think they can benefit off of this profession. It's a dream. It's a lot of people's dream to say jokes for a living. Most people that try it will never get to do it. Now that we know a little bit about where Joan came from, let's get into chapter two. This one is about how Joan is calling bullshit on people who go, well, showbiz just found me. I was discovered. They saw me. I was just walking down the street and my would-be agent came up to me and told me how gorgeous I was and I needed to sing for them. (laughs) Joan's calling bullshit on these people. She says... She was talking about how it's a grind. That would be like falling into winning the lottery. You gotta buy a ticket to win the lottery. And who wins the lottery? These hicks out in the middle of nowhere whose only daily activity is to buy lottery tickets. They are buying the lottery ticket. And to be a touring comedian, to even just make money to be a middle class, there is a such thing as middle class comedian, but to be the big fucking touring name with your name in the lights and all that bullshit... You gotta buy a ticket to be in the lottery, so you can't just fall into show business. That'd be delusional to think you could win the lottery without buying a ticket. It's delusional to be the heckler and think, I'm gonna be funnier than this guy that's been doing this every single night for years. How, you're gonna say one word and automatically you're a funnier person in the moment? Yeah, you might get someone to fucking giggle at you, but if this comedian is actually a comedian, they can say fucking anything to make you look like an idiot. That term showbiz found me, that's fucking delusion. You gotta push your product onto people. That's how McDonald's started. That's how anything, any business, anything that makes money starts. You're not gonna buy what you never see. So a little bit more about this showbiz found me people. Joan got into how there's different levels of involvement. There's the hobbyist. So those people that... (laughs) Man, I can't laugh too hard because I did it for a little bit. People that are just like bringing chicks to mike for pussy dude it's you see them week after week and sometimes the like the mentors the older people will talk to them and be like dude this isn't a magic trick man are you here to actually try to get better at telling jokes you're not getting funnier you're telling the same jokes to get the same reaction from the room to trick a girl you're a magician man (laughs) but there's also hobbyists that people that go out for girls to get the girl power encouragement you know to get yeah i was walking down the street and a guy went "Mm mm-hmm Say mommy. And girls will be like, ooh, hee. And every guy just kind of slumps in their chair and is like, is my girlfriend going to yell at me for this? <laughs> There's the hobbyist. There's the student. There's the person that's going there, listening to every single other person's set, listening to how they could have improved their jokes, how their cadence was right in this exact fucking moment to get this one guy to laugh and wanted to get this other guy to laugh. You ask people about their writing techniques. You ask people if they want to write together. There's the grinder. There's the people that are up there every night. There's different levels. And then there's obviously combinations of the both. Then there's the paid comedian could get taken on the road which 95 percent of people now aren't even making it to these levels you could headline clubs you could tour you could then start to do theaters and then you could do stadiums so there's levels you'll never see a 20 year old comedian at that stadium level 
because they didn't do the work, man. That's why with comedy is one of those truest ones where you got to trust the process, blah, 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 blah. The work is meaningful. It's only you see a Disney star who is just a magical child Miley Cyrus, Hannah Montana, Hillary Duff Ferry on a grande who get auto-tuned over and plastic surgeried into a sex symbol have done nothing but look pretty and lip-sync to make millions of dollars in a stadium and millions of people love them miley cyrus had a dad who was a country star kevin hart open mic'd for 18 years before he ever sold out a theater yeah kevin hart the guy who's in jumanji the guy who you've laughed at all of his netflix specials he was on shitty bar stages for 18 years before anybody even heard his name so did did showbiz find kevin hart or did he fucking push his product to the front of the market because he was one of the most seasoned veterans in comedy at the time? So it was his time to show everybody, this is how you do it. I've been doing it for quite a while. Step aside. And now he's chilling with The Rock. <laughs> Showbiz don't find you, man. So Joan, what is Joan complaining about now? Joan got her tonsils pulled when she was in sixth grade. <laughs> I have a bit about how I got my wisdom teeth ripped out of my face when I was awake. Yeah, they didn't put me under for that. It was next to a quick check. Yeah, 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 in the same strip. And um, there were no sheets in between me and the other kids just getting their teeth whitened. While the doctor has his boot on my sternum ripping molars out of my face. Okay, sorry, sorry, Joan. You eat some ice cream after getting your tonsils out. Sorry, baby. Joan says later she would hang out with guys because she didn't like fake compliments. She liked getting roasted for the truth. Hey. So she can handle the jokes, even if it was back in time and she's a woman. People called her Miss Piggy, though. That's mean, and it was awkward for her because she was unattractive before puberty. Yeah, I was overweight. She was a theater kid. She would mail pics of herself to MGM in Hollywood. So she was a go-getter from the start. She wasn't just in her school play. She was putting her face out there. She says one of her first major events in showbiz was when she got rejected to be dopey in the school play. And why was this eventful more than being Snow White? It was because this motivated her. Being told you're too dumb to play dopey might motivate you to <laughs> improve to become one of the most famous female comedians ever. But like any comedian knows, you learn more from your failures than from your success. You're never gonna do you're probably never gonna do a joke again that you tried for the first time and failed than if it does a little bit well. So I guess it was too much of an embarrassment. Her parents switched her schools after the play failure. No, but she was moving around a lot as a child, which they always say leads to abnormal development. And until puberty, she was only friends with boys, another not normal thing for girls, which is why she didn't just get married and become a housewife, which is what you did in the 50s. She went out and became a comedian, which is one of the most autonomous careers that you could ever have. And she was always trapped in that mentality of before she went through puberty and she looked like Miss Piggy, that guys didn't like her for her looks, so she had to be funny to win them over. All these things were groundbreaking in the 80s. Now they're cliches. One of the crazier things about that, like Joan saying, oh, I was ugly, so I had to be funny. One of the craziest things about a comic is you could be a complete asshole. You could hate the person, and they could be making fun of dying people, homeless people, handicapped people. But it could be hilarious, and you could love it. Mean is funny. So that's one of the great things about comedy. You can hate someone, but still acknowledge 
that's a funny motherfucker. So Jones starts to play the piano, one of the best things for kids. It's not like taking up a brain space, it's expanding their bandwidth, just like learning new languages. And so she's getting smarter, getting a little bit older. She gets to do the Wizard of Oz at the Paramount Theater, which is over in Hollywood. So this is a big deal. I didn't know she was this much of a Hollywood kid. Joan talked about how doing theater this young, she was dealing with the Weinsteins of the world at 16 years old. Some scumbags who were asking her to do dirty stuff to get to be a better munchkin on the yellow brick road. And then she actually booked a movie at the young age of 16 called Mr. Universe, which made her $16 a day, which was considered major cash back then. And she bought two rings with the money, one of which she still claims to have never taken off. Ew. Why would you wear the same ring for 80 years? I bet Joan died with a healthy dosing of gangrene under her ring finger. So just like Joan might have been a really cute kid, she said she wasn't, but even if she was a child actor, you don't just fall into show business. Her immigrant parents were flying her out to and then driving her to auditions every day in LA. So Joan's not a kid anymore and she's buying her lottery tickets. She's going to her auditions to be part of the plays and she learned one of the most important life lessons at a young age that nobody's going to give you anything. You don't fall into show business. You don't fall into a promotion. You don't get offered a raise if you want anything. You don't fall into any girl ever asking you to... I Maybe once a month I will get a girl's number who's like, I've been waiting so long for you to ask me out. And I'm like... What are you talking about? What have you been waiting on? There's nothing happening. I'm living my life. You would never, ever, 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 ever get laid. You would never get a promotion. You would never get anywhere in the world. You would never get 10,000 followers on a meme page. You would never get on a comedy show if you never put yourself out there. If you never shoved your shit out there, you're not going to fall into success. Sorry. Unless you fell out of a uterus with a golden parachute into some Versailles estate or whatever in Paris and your royalty. Joan knew by the age of 16, you gotta go take what's yours. And that'll take us to chapter 3 here. Joan is at the ripe age. She is in the dating scene in the 1940s. <laughs> that kind of sucks. That's like the worst time to date because everyone's still a Puritan. You would wish you were born... What, what was I? Fucking the 2010s? Cell phones were just getting started. Yeah, I mean, that was more than enough. People were sending JPEGs. <laughs> the pioneers of the dick pic. We were the generation. <laughs> All right, 1940s dating scene. What do we have for Joan? Joan is grown for the most part at this point, And she realized she's equal parts her mom and her dad. Profound. She says she does have a strengthful proponent from being beaten as a kid, as most other girls don't have. Or maybe it's because she did some work. She went out and did some auditions and put herself out there and faced rejection. Maybe you don't have to get physically abused in order to learn these lessons. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know, though. I'm torn on this one. On one hand, I could go to Walmart tonight and pick out five children that I wouldn't mind suplexing because they're fucking screaming and running away from their mom. Shut the hell up. <laughs> I'm going to hide behind the next aisle and clothesline him as soon as he's screaming and running down the aisle. <laughs> I could see why people would want to beat their kids. But on the other hand, after getting into reading science books and all that, 
one of the theories I've heard is how beating your child is the same mechanism, just like pedophilia, for violence. It's a virus, man. You just pass it on to the next kid. Nine out of ten pedophiles were touched as a child. It's a virus you're passing forward. Some kid who is peacefully parented isn't one day gonna look at the spawn of his life. The next step in his genetic story. He's not gonna be whacking this precious being with a wooden spoon if he wasn't beaten as a kid as well. So, I guess that means I'm on the scientific side rather than the Homer school of thought. Homer Simpson, that is, and sun beating. Homer was raping adolescent boys, though. <laughs> but um, nobody gave a shit about little boys throughout history. <laughs> so, Joan, she knew hard work is the deal, but she basically accomplished her dreams at 15, which she said fucked with her heart. So what do you do now, man? You just made it to the Paramount Theater in Hollywood at 15 years of age. You just keep doing the Paramount until you die? Her mom encouraged her then to go to college, which she went resentfully because... I don't know, it seems like a step backwards, and it seems like that to her as well. So she moves back to Connecticut, and then New York City, and goes to Barnard College. And she starts dating around a lot, learns about dudes. But I gotta fucking touch on this point, because I just said, at the age of 18, was it? No, I was 17 years old, man. I did a show in front of 700 people. Got to do 10 minutes of stand-up. That feeling of fucking adrenaline... I remember not being able to breathe, like, the first walk across the stage before we went to the microphone. Like, you could probably take a horse tranquilizer before, a fistful of Xanaxes, smoke ten joints. Nothing would ever calm down the fact, unless you're a serial killer, to go on stage and have that many people staring at you, to not have some sort of shake in your voice or shake in your leg. Even the largest comedians in the world who have been doing it for decades say when they go out to do their bigger venues, yeah, they're terrified. Because if you're not scared, if you lose that thing, you're becoming a robot. That's part of the job. you got to be scared. That's part of the love for it. You're still a human, man. Good. You should be scared. This is a totally unnormal act like we were talking about in the first chapter. It's crazy what you're about to put yourself through. But after doing that show... I mean, I knew I went to college. I knew I wanted to be part of the radio station. I just wanted to be <laughs> like, you, you can't connect the dots. I was listening to one of Steve Jobs commencement speeches. He says, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only see the path looking back. So don't be trapped by dogma, which is living through someone else's goals or their pre-approved system that they set up. Fucking Steve Jobs was tripping on acid and then he invented some robot that sits inside of all of our pockets and then died. This dude was a wizard, man. <laughs> what about him? I took some of his advice and ruined my life. <laughs> but there's some little hints of fucking the ether of truth you see through where you get 10,000 followers on an Instagram page. Or six months in, people actually start to discover your show that's been on the internet. You don't know if those little dots are going to be there three years ago when you ask a couple friends to try to help you start a meme page and then just turn your life into a pirate ship. Anyway, what fucking Joan was saying about having her biggest dreams accomplished at 15, Joan finally finds she was looking for was stand-up comedy. Because even though she got to do one of the biggest theaters and one of the biggest plays, The Wizard of Oz, it was fake. It's a play. She wanted to do something real. 
So she's doing school in New York. She becomes a hippie in Washington Square Park. She's holding hands in coffee shops to shut down business and, you know, hurt the free market. What a powerful hippie. They're painting each other and smelling bad. In the light of the wasteland of Washington Park, she said she met some of the most interesting people at this time. Just guys that were, you don't have to pay rent, so they're sitting there all day writing poetry, jamming on their guitars, and Joan got into it. Definitely a cool period there for her still developing. I just picked up, this is a bit of a tangent, but it goes into these hippies that she's talking about. I just got Ralph Waldo Emerson's, one of his books with all of his essays. I mean, it's all fucking public domain, so yeah, I wasted $4. <laughs> it has all of his essays and poems in it. And I'm starting to read some of this poetry, and it's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. The trees whisper to me during the night as the roots of the grass dig deeper into the ground. And it's like anybody could throw these words together into a salad, but it's about knowing the poet's backstory. And then I read a bit, a little bit. He had like nine families on life support. He said his only relief was going out into the wild. That's why nature is such a big thing in his poetry. But you're never going to make it as a poet. If nobody's heard your name, if you don't have a backstory. And that's kind of what it seems like it is with comedy. Like, every fucking superhero has a good backstory. As a comedian, you gotta do this grind for ten years so people know. Who the fuck are you? Why the hell should we listen to some bullshit that you wrote down? You've never been heckled. So there's justice on the side of the audience as well. It all goes into that trust the process thing. Later in the book, Joan, when she was, like, trying to get out of comedy, she was trashing a man called David who, like, lived on the Upper West Side in a very nice apartment overlooking the Hudson. She was saying how he won't take care of me. He's not going to be able to provide for me. I can't trust David. This is what you get for dating hippies. That's true equality. These guys don't owe you anything. David on the Upper East Side doesn't owe you anything. How is this guitarist poet you're sleeping next to in washington park going to chase his vuvuzela dream when he's got to buy you sephora on the weekends joan it's just not gonna work equality <laughs> but she says this was one of her best relationships she had in the hippie park because it was the most intense there were no smoke screens of let me take you out to three a magic number of three dinners and then we can have sex because you're not a slut then there's no smoke screen of i love you for the things that you do for me her and this guy just loved each other for their company there was no agreement. They weren't raising kids or paying rent together. And that's why she said she fell in some of the hardest love, met some of the best people, because all those people were just 100% voluntarily there. So she's dating hippies. She's getting some life experience. And now it's the 40s. She's working at a fashion store. And she said several times men would propose to her on the spot. This is the 40s. This is the reality that women want. Just everywhere you go, I'm so in love with you, ma'am. I just need to take your hand in marriage right now. And now it's 2019. A guy will date you for four months, meet your family, go with them on a trip to the friggin' Turks and Caicos, and then ghost you and unfollow you on all platforms and disappear from the face of the earth. What do you want? What do you fucking want, man? Do you want to be taken care of for the rest of your life, or do you want to do you want to go on free dates? I mean, it's pretty hard for us, man. Uh, do you want us to propose when we first see you, or do you want us to ghost you after meeting your family? I mean, be a little bit more clear, women. <laughs> so anyway, she gets fed up with men. They they can't read her mind. 
<laughs> so she she tries to act interested but not too interested and she needs to get into something else that's kind of the point i was getting out of this chapter or just because that's what i've gleaned in my life i don't give a fuck about dating like i meet girls throughout my life like i was saying before you <laughs> comedy is an amazing way to meet people you can use it as a social club as you see people go and vent into the microphone and bring their friends and it's a little social club for them it happens every week yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful thing, man. It's a little community. Or you can use this as a skill. As a skill that you can make money off of. How pure is that, dude? Wonderful. Let's get to chapter four. I'm sorry I haven't been able to share that many stories because we're still in the part of Joan's life where she isn't brave enough to get on stage yet. But she will do pre-rehearsed shows. Chapter four, she's a Broadway grinder. This was what she considered her first day of her showbiz career. Why? I don't understand why you're starting the narrative over again. <laughs> you were in one of the biggest shows when you were 15 years old. She's 25 years of age, and she gets a couple small Broadway parts. And now Joan's getting gawked at, walking up and down Broadway with her headshots looking for work. And this was before the cleanup of New York City. So people thought she was just like a high-class escort <laughs> holding several shots for the guy to choose from. Oh, I want you to wear this look. I'm from outside in New York City. Me and my buddies would do some exploring growing up. On accident one time, I took a guy's mixtape. It was near Times Square, so I wasn't afraid of getting shot. And I just started walking away. And apparently, out of nowhere, a bigger thug phased into existence. And I walked into his chest, and he's like, Where's that $10 you promised my boy? I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? He's like, that rap album ain't free, cuz. So I had to give it back to him and just walk my white ass out of there. Hey, no dope rhymes for me. I would have maybe supported you on Patreon or some shit. I wish the prostitutes were that pushy, though. Like I said before, even a prostitute won't give you sex if you're giving them money. You can't get anything. You gotta go take what's yours. <laughs> but she's in the old New York, and she's pushing her headshot. She's dealing with the Harvey Weinsteins. She said a couple agencies would try to make her kiss other women. And this was just, like, accepted back then. You would just do what your employer wanted, even though if it's some of the most disgusting abuse ever. That's you, This is an employee, not a sex slave, sir. <laughs> I've been to some bullshit sales agencies interviews, like you get through um, fucking LinkedIn even, man. But there's, like, Livewire and a couple other job boards, and I went to what's called Blackwater here in Denver. I don't give a fuck about, <laughs> about bad-talking them. Blackwater Marketing. I went to their round one interview. They would not show me the sales floor, nor could I really get an idea of what my future employer would be selling. They said it was medical technology, but I couldn't see the floor. There were probably people there fucking chained up at the neck with a phone stitched to their head. Answer the damn phone. <laughs> If I accepted the job, <laughs> they would have thrown me in there. But it was just some, like, janky-ass room in a burnt-out business park with Ikea-ass furniture run by some 30-year-old girl. She seemed a little bit younger than that, even. And, you know, it was a cool young millennial employment, Blackwater, because they had a dog there. But the dog's fur was all over the fucking Ikea furniture. <laughs> so if uh, Chaboy is a little bit allergic, he's going to be running snot all over your slave calling floor. So even these friggin' marketing agencies, even the agencies that Joan was dealing with, are on a fake-it-till-you-make-it basis. If you ever get into open micing, you're going to hear that term 
every day, man. Being up on stage, you got to feign the confidence in order to make everybody else in the room feel comfortable. And and the biggest thing in stand-up comedy is fake it till you make it, dude. Nobody in the world knows what they're doing. You think just some guys with microphones know what they're doing, too? No, but we'll actually admit it, and we actually do put the work in to write some jokes and be funny. And if we don't, it's very obvious, and we're going to get booed off stage. We don't like that as much as you don't like that. That's why it's somebody who's actually into comedy into the art of refining and writing and then telling and refining and rewriting it pays off when you put the work in and immediately too you get to tell the joke and then people laugh dude it's magic (laughs) but not trickery magic that our scumbag brethren magicians are pulling over on you and some of you are thinking fuck you you're a phony for saying fake it till you make it how did you get your job, man? You go to a job interview that you are there to talk to be in a position where you are going to spend more time with these people than you do with your significant other. And you act more fake than you do on a first date. You wear a suit and tie and you use your best manners and say everything by the book for these people that are going to learn everything about you within the span of a few months. This whole world is fake it until you make it. Joan was saying how back then resumes were mostly lies, especially in the comedy business. You could have faked anything back there. Now people could double check with a phone call. Joan isn't telling jokes at this point, though. She's only working a day job. She says she's adjusting columns in social in the social security system. And this is all while she's doing Broadway at night, too. So she's not even at the highest successful level in the acting thing, either. But as these things work out, she gets to work less and less as she gets some acting gigs at the C Word, which is an off-Broadway theater. And she's in her mid-20s, and she's in that grinding mode. She's got a friggin' desk job. She's making a little bit of money in her hustle. She's hitting her auditions to try to get new pieces and getting accustomed to how much she can work. Big thing you need to find out about yourself because you don't have a manager in acting, in comedy, in magic, in any of these entrepreneurial pursuits. You don't have anybody to tell you, hey, it's fucking work time. No, man. I read books for no reason. <laughs> If you're making those goals to reach to, the dots will connect themselves in the forward. But if there's no dots, there's no goals, you're not buying any lottery tickets, you're not getting anywhere. So let's not, as they say in the comedy career, stagnate. Let's go to chapter 5, Rogue Agent. This is when Joan is no longer a free agent and she finds a little bit of representation. Jones said, until she found a legitimate agent, she had always been on the fringe. You see this a lot in Denver. I'm sure it's in every single comedy scene. You need to fill a lineup, man. You need to have at least like 90 minutes of comedy if you were going to put on a weekly comedy show. And that's going to be less than 20 comedians. But you need the people that are in the city that are going to be able to reliably fill this lineup. And there's always people moving. As I said, you're going to have people that come and try comedy for... Usually it's one night. Maybe they'll try for a week. Maybe they'll try for a month. You need people filling these lineups if you're going to have a show. And in Denver and every scene, you're going to have these fringe comedians who do some sort of alt. 
but who gives a fuck? They are going to fill up your lineup. And <laughs> and it's a little bit different, too, so it makes the show seem more eclectic when you go to the next comedian. It's a bigger mix-up. And so those people are necessary. As I'm saying, like it is a little oversaturated when you're talking about featuring and getting into the clubs. But in these open mic circuits... <laughs> sometimes people need help people ask you to be on their shows on different nights of the week like i'm saying going out of your way to try to make something you made a deal with whatever irish bar with the owner to say yo monday nights we are going to do a comedy show for you here you have a mutual agreement now you have to live up to that you have to be ingrained enough into that comedy scene to know enough people to fill your show and so joan was saying she was always going to be on the fringe if she didn't get an agent to get her better auditions for her acting type of deal that's why she was getting auditions for shitty background gigs on broadway now she's getting lead auditions and I think this part of the chapter in advice applies a little bit less now with the internet because I could look up any comedy club manager in the country, email them some of my stand-up videos. Literally, I could do all of that work myself. Nobody needs to take 10% of my money anymore. But these people are going to have better connections, yada, yada, yada. I'm just saying it definitely applies less now. This is a bigger deal for Joan and her time. Her first agent's name is Hamilton Katz. That's some guy that walked the walk and talked the talk, and he picked her up. He saw some talent, and he was doing the illusion, right? So she fell for it. He's the type of guy who always had, like, who was always able to make sign language with his guitar, just pointing with it along drag means emphasis on this topic that we're talking about, or just blowing smoke in your face means piss off. I don't want to hear from you anymore. <laughs> Hamilton was able to get Joan on list to mingle backstage at different shows. This is networking. This is huge. This is how you get invited to more mics if you talk to other hosts. But this is also why a lot of comics are cagey. You're always assuming people are going to be asking you for something. I'll share a quick story. I was in... <laughs> I was in a fucking Starbucks one day and this guy comes up to me and I won't give out his exact handle, but he was like, my name is Lucius Morningstar. How am I going to advance your career today? And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Hello. <laughs> I indulged him a little bit because I, was, I leaned back from my computer. I was visibly taking a break. I was editing the audio for a Nick's nonfiction. So this guy was looking over my shoulder. He's like, yo, what the fuck is this kid making the next Let It Be, Chainsmokers, Roses, <laughs> the next platinum album? And I was like, no, dude, I'm just I'm making a podcast that I do. And this guy had a button-up shirt on, and I freaking entertained him for a minute because I didn't know what he was about. But then when I showed him, he was like, mm, okay, okay, I can be a big asset. I can be a um, 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 um. And I was like... A, a correspondent and he's like yes that is what i said i could be a correspondent for your show and so within our two minute interaction already this guy took credit for one of the words that i gave him i can see very clearly here this guy was a leech he wanted to try to take credit for some of the work that i was doing in the show but this fucking happens at every level it happens at the highest levels so anyway, Lucius, my fucking <laughs> interruptee, he was like, I know a lot of people. What job do you want in the city? I know everybody. And I was like, any job in the city if I could have it. And he's like, yes, any job you want. I was like, get me my own CBS Denver radio show. 
And he goes, beautiful, wonderful. You're going to have an... And he starts walking towards the door at this point because he, he like, sat down with me for a little bit. I was showing him, like, this is how I edit the show. This is how I upload it to YouTube. This is where the podcasts go on iTunes. And he kept trying to say, yes, I'm going to be a great correspondent. I was like, you are not a part of this. Please get away from me. Go get me an FM radio show. And he said this. You are going to have an interview Monday. Dress well and bring your A game. And he's about to open the door. And I was like, hold up, man. Don't you want my email or maybe my last name? And he's like, uh, yeah, yeah. So I took down his Instagram handle and I gave him my meme page. <laughs> I wasn't going to give this motherfucker my name. <laughs> this was not a fun experience for me. And I'm sure this happens a lot. There are leeches out there. This is what Joan is saying throughout the business. She had to try to find the right agent who wasn't just trying to take from her. I have been given a couple times by older women after I've gotten off of stage talent agent cards. And there are a couple in Denver. Damn, that is the meme timer. I do have to post a nightly meme. Let's see if I can multitask this in the show. I've had women from talent agencies come up to me after mics and said that was really good. You have potential... I can tell you're in the earlier stages, but if you hammer away at this thing, we can try to get you some sets in the future. And so I am... I'm not a fucking... This isn't big news. I am in the works with one of these agencies that are nationwide. So, good thing I didn't fucking give Lucius Morningstar a correspondent position on my show. He would have been getting credit and clout for nothing. (laughs) It's like knowing what alliances to make is an important part about this chapter, I'm going to say. Katz was really good for Joan. He pushes her into some more comedy plays like Harvey Bernadine. Some of these comedy plays even did like five runs on Broadway. And then they would take it to smaller theaters. And Joan said she finally got to do some ad-libbing. So this is the late 1950s. She's in her late 20s. And she's taking her comedy shows to smaller theaters. And she gets to run with an idea. She gets to make people laugh with her own ideas. She's not a part in a play anymore. She's doing it. She's starting to transition into comedy a little bit. Joan starts talking about men and women again, freaking obsessed with it. She goes, I've never been truly close to women, never had great women friends, probably because we see each other as threats, competing for attention and sexual control. This is like what I was saying before. Girls compliment each other and don't mean it. Guys roast each other with the best intentions. And so Joan likes truth, so she gravitated towards the dude side of that. And in this one of these smaller theaters that she was taking the comedy show to, she talked a lot about, it was right above a parking garage. And she was saying the engine fumes would be rising up towards the middle of the show. She could see in the audience. They couldn't see it. But it was getting real fumy out in the crowd. And she said people would start to giggle a little bit more. They were getting lightheaded. They were, they were getting faded off the fumes out there. <laughs> that is a performance enhancer, Joan. That is not a fair set. <laughs> And so Joan is meeting some people that she's going to know for the rest of her life. One of which, most important kid's name, great for me and the rest of the show, Nikki. He dropped out of school at 15 years old, and Nikki was the guy who got her into comedy open mics. He popped her cherry. He is her Sherpa. He led her to the mountain. You have to let somebody else push themselves off the cliff. You can't walk through the door for somebody, but he showed her it. That's one of the most crucial pieces to the story, and Joan was very thankful to this kid about, and she friend zones him for the rest of her life as an act of gratitude. <laughs> 
So Nikki invites her to this place called B&G, and she does not go on stage the first time, but she is the only woman in the audience, and she loves it. Comedy has been, and still is a majority male thing and people say well we have to balance the lineup so as as much men and women that's not a representation of the population that is putting in the effort they found an agent in the audience you see this dude this shit's scary so you don't you never know what mike is going to be an audition but you can go to like the comedy works has the tuesday open mic night which is basically a fucking audition if they like you they invite you back for spots i am yet to do that yet that was my goal for the end of 2019 but i don't want to this is like one of those things you don't want to fucking jump the gun for why are you gonna go try to do the 20 foot ramp at the x games when you just learned a year ago how to ride a tricycle <laughs> i've heard from some of my other mentors in the area like people do the comedy works open mic every single week but those are the guys then seen as filling the lineup by the works. The club then sees, oh, you're one of our local open micers. Okay, you're you're good for our Thursday night show and we don't have to pay you. <laughs> and you pay us $5 to drink here. Not that I'm not trying to get taken advantage of. You got to be in the right place to fucking make the money eventually. But I'm a nobody, man. <laughs> I'm making YouTube videos out of my room. Knowing your place is a really important one, Joan is saying in the comedy verse for sure don't go to mics that are above your level it's that simple and so uh joan saw this agent in the audience and the agent tells her and nikki about another mic downtown and they go and do it big nuts joan her first night seeing the new york mics goes up on stage and she said afterwards people were telling her that she killed it and she had one of the best fucking nights she was drinking all night with these people but deep down she knew she bombed <laughs> because she's the type of person that knows she wants to learn how to get something down to a science, how to perfect a scene in her case. She knows what the night could have been and she knows that her psyche and her rushing through the set and was filling the airtime more than she wanted to believe for her first mic. That's an extremely mature and objective view for a first time micer. I wasn't that mature. I was like, fuck it, I'm going up tomorrow night. I'm the best thing ever come to denver <laughs> and you go through phases like this high and low and you realize holy shit there are levels to this and she said nikki liked her even more for realizing this hey me too fucking whoa what a coincidence oh it's a nick orgy one of my jokes is about how is it gay if you go back in a time machine and hook up get a free hand job from your past self i think that's your free time hop hand job Think about that while you're falling asleep. You'll have a beautiful dream. And so the agent then that came with them gave Joan a couple places that she could go practice more. And he said, you'll make it in a few years. And this set in with her. She was like, damn, a real guy that knows stand-up comedy is giving me a timeline. And that is really powerful for people. The biggest success story I've seen since I've been here is one kid who just started getting spots at the Comedy Works. And then he's going to like fucking Salt Lake City and doing features over there. I was talking to one of the people that had been in the scene for a while, and they were like, yeah, he's been open micing here for seven years. And I was like, what the fuck? He's been here for se yeah, seven years, seven years, and he just started getting funny the last two years. Like, what do you fucking mean started getting funny? And they're like, I don't know what it was. His bits came together. He started to be a funny dude. And, <laughs> like, these agents, these people that have been in the business for a while 
can just put like a timeline on people an estimation of when they're going to be great that's what all these um like people that are just buying plots for tv shows or pilots for tv shows it's all a gamble that's what stand-up comedy is too and the stock is the person so it's pretty crazy you want to grow your own stock you're making yourself a product it's we're sluts yeah we're all sluts so now Joan has the facilities to improve as a stand-up. And she's hanging out more with Nikki. Nikki was a true stand-up. This kid would just wear the same khakis every day in a pair of loafers. He eat jello for almost every meal. And so not only does Joan have the gym, the mic to work out at that the agent gave her, but Nikki is still showing her all around Manhattan. And she still has dreams of winning a dramatic acting award, but she feels the most alive on stage in this point of life than she ever has before, even more than The Wizard of Oz. And she's just doing bar shows with her buddy. So Joan is no longer a rogue agent. And so we see through this the moving goalposts in Joan's journey. And that's a common theme in every comic's journey. Keep moving the goalposts. Keep moving forward. You got 10K followers, Harry shit. Who the fuck cares? There are a million page meme accounts out there. Let's keep going. Chapter 6, the open mic maestro. That is what I'm calling Joan for this chapter because she is starting to fucking kill the open mic scene. It's a beautiful thing. I've seen somebody thrive around night after night. She says the other comics accept her into the scene, which was even bigger than getting laughs on certain nights. And she's going to crazy parties, starting to network. She said even though she hated doing the networking, laughter made her feel safe in awkward conversations. Laughter is the perfect thing to diffuse an awkward conversation or situation. Think about an open mic. There are 30 strangers that don't know each other sitting in a dark, dingy bar where it is more statistically likely in Colorado that somebody has a concealed firearm on them and people are getting hammered. You are just waiting for a bar fight to break out, basically. But there's a dumbass in the corner trying to make people laugh on a microphone and that diffuses all of the tension laughter is fucking perfect man it makes everybody feel comfortable you see that video where an fbi agent does a backflip on the dance floor and his gun falls out of his pocket and fires on the ground yeah, that was at a nightclub here in Denver. The guy did have his gun permit taken away. But everyone was dancing around awkward, so he was like, yeah, I guess I'm just going to do a secret agent somersault, and this will fix the situation. But instead, he got sent on paid leave. If he just told a joke, people maybe wouldn't be missing toes out here in Denver. <laughs> Humor is a diffuser. And the converse of that, paranoia, makes everyone feel gross. You learn this very quick in comedy, it's all groupthink. If you could get one person to laugh, you could usually get more than one person to laugh. And it starts with you. If you think your jokes are funny, they can fucking tell somehow, man. They will know if you mean what you're saying and this joke is funny to you or not. Or if you're mailing it in, everyone's going to smell it. And if you're paranoid, if you're not comfortable up on that stage, people feel it that's why i'm saying comfortability confidence is the most important thing when you're behind the mic it's like a management mentality you're managing a room you're reading a room you gotta let everybody know yeah we're gonna make it through the next five minutes it's gonna be okay everybody we'll tell a couple stories of a couple jokes i'll make fun of myself if it gets awkward we'll be okay <laughs> and so joan being the the open mic maestro fuck i want that nickname <laughs> 
she starts learning little tips like these that I'm forwarding through the book. And she spends chapters talking about how these times with Nikki at the parties and watching him go on stage and her watching him made her fall in love with him more than she's ever felt love in her life. But they were both jokers, so they would never be able to be together. Even though since they were jokers, they're both comfortable sitting in silence together. They know they don't have to be funny 24-7. But he's just too similar. We would never work. So Joan friendzones Nikki. And so as she tables him, we'll table him for the rest, for a big majority of the rest of the show. Joan is three years now into her open micing career. And she said one of her best bits is about Pearl Harbor because she was into shock comedy. And she said she was getting some of the best reactions doing jokes about things that people weren't ready to laugh about yet. And then she was doing sets in strip clubs while girls got painted. And they were embarrassed for Joan <laughs> because she was bombing on stage. Meanwhile, these girls are naked and getting painted. Who should be embarrassed for who? <laughs> she was also doing sets just standing on, like, lunch buffet tables. But I can't shit on her too much because out here I've literally performed on soap boxes. I've performed at gay bars, one of my favorite but still weird shows is in the back of a cafe bookstore which is it's dope you're all in the back of the stacks and so it kind of feels like everybody's bullshitting at lunch and a librarian's about to come and hush you and push your glasses back up and then pop back to the front of the store and since it's a bookstore you don't feel too bad when you bomb because nobody's laughing and you're quiet like you're supposed to be no but it's really cool like um the speakers reach all the way up to the front, the cafe part. So when you're having a good set and people are laughing, then people from the cafe walk to the back of the store and they all start to pop their head in on your set. That is a good fucking feeling, man. Jose McCall, he's a 10-year micer out here in Denver over at Mutiny Info. Go check it out. South Broadway, Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Even if there is a janky open mic, you are getting the experience and learning how to win over that situation. That's what Joan learned at the strip clubs. And she is really hammering down that she is three years through her Jack Rollins assumption of blowing up as a comic. So she's getting a little paranoid. She's getting antsy that she's not where she thinks she should be in her career. So let's move along now. Chapter 7, no longer the Mike Maestro. She is turning into a road dog. She's getting out there and doing gigs on the road making money. And apparently... You eat a lot of dick on the road. A lot will go as you're not expecting because you're not in your domain anymore. If you go somewhere else and perform comedy, it's going to be a different audience, so you have to adjust. So we got time for the horror stories. Let's start this one with a quote from Joan. All of us in comedy have had our show bars, our hideous low points that almost destroy us, except that we come back to have more of them, walking out on stage hundreds of hundreds of times when lights are broken, microphones don't work, audiences are hostiles, when our material stinks, that is what makes you tough, that is what changes you from a happy amateur to a professional, tans your hide, turns you eventually leathery. You've probably heard the term burnt wood or just a veteran, man. You see this transition very quickly with people. And I saw it with me. Like I said, that first night I went to the mic, I was like, I need to get up there tomorrow night, blah, 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 blah. Because people really do gas you up. They're like, yeah, man, that was a really good set. You need to keep working at this. Because that's the fact. You just need to keep working at this. It only took Kevin Hart 18 years to freaking get somebody to start to get a couple people's attention. 
So you, it's a journey. You make the transition from just loving the craft to learning that a craft is a labor. It's something that you're going to have to put work into. But if you love it, you're going to keep going back to it, man. That's what love is. You might be frustrated by it at times, but you want to keep doing it. It makes you happy. Oh my God, man. I got... Jonah's saying at some shows there's going to be lights out. There's going to be broken mics. Broken mics are common and it's fucking terrible, man. You have to shout. That's why like I shout I shout into the mic here. I'm used to shouting anyway to keep people's attention. But you lose a lot of laughing power. You lose a lot of control of the room. A lot of why girls why you'll get sucked off after a show man is because girls see you control the room it's all about control if you don't have a microphone you're just another shithead in the room this is why like john mulaney says or high level comics people will wear suits because when you see somebody on stage with a suit shut up and listen that is what we are conditioned to do this is your principle shut up and listen if you see somebody in a suit with a microphone this person could blow up the world they're a politician for all your subconscious brain knows shut up and listen and that's what you need you need control dude i got in trouble one time there's the comedy room room here in denver and (laughs) it's a really nice room like it's packed in fucking probably 30 to 40 people deep that is a real good show, but <laughs> Thursday nights, it's a lineup of 50 people. You'll be there until like 2 a.m., a four-hour comedy show. The fucking audience is burnt out after 90 minutes. Anyway, I got in trouble there one time for saying, <laughs> my first joke was, I like went like that into the mic and went, me and my sisters had a better Barbie karaoke machine growing up than the quality of this fucking microphone. And... <laughs> And people started laughing because I was the first one to make a joke about it throughout the night. And the girl who's covering for the show was like, yeah, tip for next time. You're not going to want to make fun of the venue's equipment as the first thing you do on stage. (laughs) And I was like, all right, it was worth the laugh once. But yeah, thank you for fucking telling me this moving forward. You don't want to go to a club eventually that you're going to want to try to work in the future and just shit on them first and foremost. That's not exactly a bad situation, but things like that are going to make you leathery. I didn't feel good when she told me that I used a stupid joke to start off. But that's why I'm saying failure is how you learn. But this is why assholes up in the highest levels like friggin' Tom Cruise exist. Like, oh, I need a sparkling water with three ice cubes at 128 degrees stirred four times counterclockwise. (laughs) Two squeezes of lemon only with four seeds per. And some would argue, I think you're still an asshole, but this guy has been through unimaginable shit on stage in some of the craziest towns in America dealing with drunk bar patrons. You get to tell people how many ice cubes to put in your water, some say. So Joan's featuring here. She starts dealing with comedy managers who don't respect the craft. They're looking at you as somebody who fills seats, who sells drinks. It's a business. Some managers were telling her, if you lose 10 pounds and streak your hair, Joan, you're going to get millions of people to love you. It's going to change the trajectory of your career if you're just a little bit better looking. Who who is this club manager to say lose 10 pounds and streak your hair? The only thing that the top dogs have in common is that they made it work doesn't matter how good looking you are it doesn't matter what color your skin is like the stadium touring act comedians are a a majority minority you got the iglesias you got Chappelle. freaking it's just the hard work so don't listen to bad tips (laughs) 
Anyway, when Joan's on the road dealing with the shitty club manager, she needs a girl to confide in and talk about how losing weight isn't an appropriate thing to be told. So she makes her first girlfriend, Joan. Her chick's name is Treva. And I'm sorry, they were just friends in New York, it was. Yeah, they were just, like, buddying around. Joan was getting back into theater a little bit because of this chick. And she said she was feeling more at home with the theater kids than with the open micers. Maybe that's why she was still looking for a way out of comedy until the end. But these theater kids, she said, were pushing her into more insulated humor types like highbrow fucking punching up type of stuff i make fun of homeless people man you can make fun of whatever you want funny is funny but you'll see in these lefty communities or just these like theater kids you can never make fun of people that are not in the powerful position who made this rule you are you the comedy police no get the fuck out of this mic So Joan has a little bit of time to mess around now that she's making money with comedy on the road. And she tries what's called Revway comedy up in the Catskills, which is supposed to be that high echelon wordplay and type of comedy. I've been to fucking poetry slam mics. That has the type of stuff where people will like press play on a boombox and just do silly shit. That has, like, people who are talking, who are just complaining about their life, man. Like, some of these open micers are complaining about how their dad is beating them, but they actually put a joke in it. Like, hey, the only one that beats my meat more than me is my dad. (laughs) Terrible joke. But that's still better than some Ralph Waldo Emerson coming out of some cranky 18-year-old's mouth. The black tear drives from my eye as father leaves for work a fifth day a week. Suck it up, kid. It's not 1800. Go try to write a joke. And so up until this time, Joan was still using her name Malinsky. And then after bombing, one of the road managers finally told her, Joan, use a stage name. It might help a little bit with those bombs, you know? Your name, Malinsky, will not be tarnished with that embarrassment forever. (laughs) One of Joan's defense mechanisms on the road, she said, became make them laugh before they can laugh at you. That's a good one. Like, if I acknowledge the fact that I'm a fucking pretty boy before someone in the audience can say that, it diffuses the entire situation. And that's, I know, the biggest thing that people are looking at me for. One of the heckles have been, Get a girlfriend! Because I have some single material. And I said to the guy once, Not if she looks like yours! Because you could see the girl was getting angry because I was talking about how chicks want to be taken on dates. And then she was fucking starting to pinch her boyfriend's arm. And the guy went, Get a girlfriend! Because this guy didn't know what to do. He just knew the nerves on the back of his arm were being pinched by his puppet master. And he blurts out, Get a girlfriend! And so I luckily got to shut his ass down and fucking make the girl feel bad as well. Yeah, you don't have to be nice to women. There's no fucking manners in a comedy club, bitch. (laughs) Other people are laughing at the joke, and you just helped me out by getting your stupid puppet to contribute to the show for me to slam dunk on it in front of everybody. (laughs) Those are some of the best opportunities, man. It's about being comfortable on stage, being ready, and like Joan just said, her defense narrative, (laughs) make them laugh before they can laugh at you. That's like the tenant of diffusing a heckler. It's gonna happen, man. One of the quotes I liked Joan said was, Bad teaches you and makes you think. Good takes care of itself and gets better. That's what I'm always saying. Bad makes you adjust. Nothing is a finished piece. You just, you ignore nothing. You're never going to know what to improve on. Record your sets. Hear what's bad. 
So it is now 1960, and she is like 30 years old. She's getting a lot of road work because she has a car, so she could drive other features out there and everything. That's a huge asset. And objectively, she's looking in the mirror and saying, I may be 30 years old and getting chubbier and older, but audiences are now trusting her enough to run with a thought and explore it. And she fully grasps that confidence is the way to take your audience where you want and is always there it's just much harder to access at sometimes other than others if that ain't the fucking truth man you know that beast inside of you is always there that friggin what is that when you're doing your hundredth sit up and your face is beat red or when you're coming off of 500 milligrams of caffeine and have been up for 20 hours but you need to write another couple pages where do you find that beast mode that I hate myself for just saying hashtag beast mode. But you and me are animals. There is a fire burning inside of every single one of us. The access that you have to that fire, the access, and Joan was just saying, to the calmness that you have on stage is always there. It's just harder to access at times. What am I preaching about? <laughs> but that's about finding your voice. That's what your voice is. And Joan thinks she found it here around at the age of 30. I don't know. I still try every which word and way out on stage. Like I say, I'm a, I'm a weird character, man. As you look at people walk up to the stage, immediately everybody's a friggin' character. So sometimes I will go with it, and these work. I can go on stage, and because of my aura, good-looking, tall-built, white dude, I go, my chick was blowing me the other night. But then my fucking mom interrupted and was like, not at the dinner table. You could do some shit like that where if you're confident enough and you look like a scumbag like I do, people will <laughs> believe and go along with the narrative. <laughs> but that's not me, man. I don't fucking talk like that. When I'm not doing a predetermined bit, I sound most like I do when I'm ranting on the podcast. It's finding that voice. And I think that's why I'm doing this show has definitely helped what I find as a helpful stage voice. And Joan's saying she found this later in her career around the age of 30, and you hear this from most comedians. So chapter 8 we have here, Joan is a headliner. It is a short and sad chapter. Joan was saying how nobody from her hometown, not even her parents at the first times, believed it when she said that she was going to headline a club. <laughs> how fucking sad is that? <laughs> But this makes sense. There's a huge fucking market for nerd comedy now. Like those Netflix. There are so many weird markets for comedy that there could... You might one day see the horse girl from your high school has a comedy special about equestrian or some shit. <laughs> Joan was saying nobody in her hometown. They were like, what the fuck? Joan Malinsky? That chick's on Leno on Comedy Central? Yeah. A lot of these people say they weren't the friggin' Chad of their high school. And her parents still resent her, which she was surprised by. She thought everybody would love me when I'm successful. No, no siree, Bob. Just as many people hate you, probably more are going to hate you because fame is polarizing, success is polarizing. Even her parents are still mad that she is cursing in person. Oh, she's making thousands of dollars off of cursing, but it's still frowned upon by God. But she's comfortable in her skin, so that's literally the most important thing in the world for a person. So that's what matters. And she didn't reel it in when she got big. Imagine if she listened to her parents and stopped cursing. She would have been a fucking sellout. She would have been like Maroon 5, like real alternative rock music, and then just straight pop when Adam Levine does the Super Bowl and sells the band out to be a public image. 
So what does Joan do? She just turns to work, and it pays off even harder. She goes to synagogues in New York, as the, she's Jewish, the Jew she is, and she winds up networking with people that are getting her on a lot more shows. In the time of the Catskills, Jewish people were still running show business back then. I don't know how it is. That, that's the common trope. You hear how it is now. But she was making those meaningful connections. She said her parents changed the lock on the house. And that's what I'm saying here. It's a short but sad chapter. Joan is finding out that it is low only at the top people like an underdog story if you're not like fighting for the win anymore it doesn't look like you're putting in the work so people don't care to support you anymore and that kind of makes sense you already have it what what's there to cheer for anymore you made it go be a rich person now <laughs> and so joan is headlining as she will for the rest of her career she's a massive comedian here this will take us to chapter 9. She's hitting a couple road bumps in the later career. So she lived in a building where no men were allowed. How is this not sexist? How is this not segregation? <laughs> Can I file um, a civil rights protest that we need to integrate this house? And these fucking broads are still wondering why we didn't let them vote. Well, I don't want to live with the rats on the first floor either. And these women were saying that men <laughs> were only allowed to live in the first of the basement levels of the building. But Joan was saying this is when she did some of the best writing in her career. It was called the Midston House in New York, and she had a permanent phone number, somebody to take her messages, a desk in her house. This was her best joke writing because it's a stable period, she's saying. And now old Nicky pops up back into her life, and he's knowing that the success that she found with stand-up isn't fulfilling her totally. So he's saying, you know, if you want to do some acting, I got some spots for you. He's a nice guy still. Joan gave some really good insight this chapter. She said at this point in her life, mid-30s, starting to get into the 40s, she was still dreaming of making, you know, the Joan Malinsky movie her whole life. This is what everybody fucking wants, a movie made about them where it's played by The Rock and you're remembered forever as a god. The end. <laughs> but maybe this is just what getting older is. Like, a lot of men say that they have a moment in their life when they come to the terms with shit yeah i am going to die and a lot of men usually say this is when they have a child but joan said she started to come to terms with the overwhelming odds of her not getting the tell-all tale and that she may die in this no boys allowed cat lady clubhouse that she moved herself into you're never going to be the ideal version of yourself she was painting a picture the american dream you're never going to fucking step into the painting that you painted for yourself everything is fleeting the only thing you have is the moment so Joan has her first of a couple big breakdowns. That's why this chapter was called Road Bumps. And she said it's because she's finally realizing the odds. <laughs> so you, there you go. She had a healthy dose of delusion when getting into the business. Joan is living in a really nice building at this point, but she's saying she's still living paycheck to paycheck poor. And Nikki does anything to make sure that she doesn't start hooking for some extra money. How low of standards do you have to have if you're living in a doorman building, but you're still hooking for new purses? What the hell are you talking about, Joan? This Nikki dude is doing way too much for you. He should let you be selling your body on the street, even though you're a paid comedian. <laughs> She's in her early 30s and she's going, maybe I peaked at those clubs and there's nothing to look forward to. But remember, she was saying this at 20. Maybe I peaked at the Paramount at Hollywood as a child actor. Keep fucking moving. It's not hindsight. That's the past. There's going to be a future if you create a future for yourself. You got to manifest these things. Nothing's going to happen if you don't make it happen. So during this big breakdown, Nikki was there for her and he called Joan's dad. And one of the 
best things that he ever did was say, okay, Joan, I'll take you home. Right where you started, we can take you home, Joni. Or you, me, and Nikki can go to an open mic right the fuck now, and you can get on stage and get this shit out of your system. No matter how poor you get, if you're hooking for purses, no matter how unsure you are about your career, if you're saying, I did a 700-seat theater as a 17-year-old and I might never get to do that again, shut the fuck up, keep moving. If you're unsure, dude, about your relationship status, if you just got dumped, whatever the fuck it is, that brick wall with that microphone stand is always going to be there at the end of the night for you to put some work in. And yeah, I I say this in the most serious sense, but this is what it is. You're creating a skill. Whether you know it or not, whether you go there to vent, whether you go there to fucking work on your comedy and level that shit up, whether you go there to show off for your friends or invite a chick to get laid, that mic on the brick wall is always going to be there and it doesn't take a comic it didn't take joan's dad or nikki to tell that she needed to be there when all else is gone what can you do you put the fucking work in because (laughs) another one that i live by behind every principle is a promise and if you put the work in if you build a skill if you build something for real you'll make something out of it there's always going to be those road bumps even at the (laughs) <laughs> if anybody out there is thinking of getting into open miking, when you start, this first year for me, man, has been an unpaved road. It's gravel. It's bumpy. This is more than a road bump. It's a fucking moguls, dude. I've been in three different jobs within the span of this year, all because I am prioritizing having enough time to get good at my open mic comedy people move across the country for people they love you got to be willing to work three different jobs in a year to try to find a good puzzle piece for this point in your life to be able to do this comedy thing it's a huge fucking commitment and joan is second guessing it you can't be second guessing it luckily she had the support system her dad nikki was there to get her back on track And this is going to take us to chapter 10, what is called On Tour. Joan is big at this point. And she starts this with a bit of a theoretical question. What makes a comic hit or what makes their act really gel into a tourable hour of comedy? And so she's headlining around the country now and playing around with audiences. So she learns how to gel the act. But how does she turn those nights in the club where you're doing some crowd work and getting to know a little bit about the town? How does she turn that into a touring stadium act? And Joan is one of the few comedians to ever make it to this level. Level to be able to turn out hours of comedy year after year so in the end of her career she's also doing these like she's doing roasts man and she's touring doing the carsons we were talking about before and she had another really great one of her quotes about how finding your voice becoming an act is like a birth process joan said the act evolves out of yourself but not intellectually You can't sit there with a notepad and think for a million years. What is my stage presence? And then it'll just pop up. This is a process of hashing out. 
All right, no more interruptions. The act evolves out of yourself, but not intellectually. It gathers emotionally inside of you in a strange way, as a byproduct of struggle, a willingness to do and try anything, and staying in motion sooner rather than later. Pay your dues until you develop technique and stage identity. It is a birth process and can be very painful. What I said before sums up Joan's beautiful birth metaphor. Behind every principle is a promise. And all of this shit that is festering up inside of you, man. All of this anger. All the fucking happiness. All of the laughter. All of the impulsive fucking beautiful moments that you can never recreate that you're having in the room with these people at the end of the night. Throughout decades. If you stick with it as long as Joan... She said all of that building up inside of you, if you pay your dues, it's going to be painful, but it's a birth process and you're going to find your voice throughout. And Joan was saying, you got to fucking want it. You can't perceive how bad you want it compared to others because it is inside of you and it grows deeper than you thought it could. You will never be able to portray a feeling to someone else. It comes from within. Like I said before, Nikki brought her to the open mic. It was up to her whether she wanted to get on stage or night. You gotta fucking take the jump for yourself. That's with everything in life. So now Joan, Joan's like done it all as a comedian. It's a little bit later in her life. Her and Nikki are doing some theater again together for fun because he's a real one. He's been there from beginning to end and helped her journey. And to end out this chapter, Joan dropped a couple tips, one being how she found how accents are a really good tool on stage to get people's attention again, because it kind of tricks them into thinking it's somebody else talking on stage, which it obviously isn't, but it does give you a quick little, a quick little reset with you and the audience. And then one of her other internal tips, like make them laugh before they laugh at me, was always tell yourself that it's going to go well. Because you need to assure yourself in order to ensure the audience. And it's just like I'm saying in life. If I was never mentally obsessed for the four years of high school with hosting that school talent show, I maybe would have never manifested this whole timeline where I quit my prospective career in the Air Force to talk on the radio and then quit a prospective stupid fucking bank job teller career to pursue comedy. So just like setting up these narratives and timelines, have you ever heard of fucking timeline surfing? This is one of the craziest things. I'm going to have to read a book on this. But you can see, I don't know if I'm a, I'm just a fucking autist, so I'm going to let you in the mind of a, of a special person here. I write down what I do every single day of my life. You can see the trends of where your fucking future is moving. There is no future, there is no past. I don't know what we are. I'm a little pile of goo with some bones and meat that tries to go see a sun set every night possible writing everything down like a computer i have a lot of raw data when you make incremental movements toward a goal damn i'm just saying cliche shit if you make incremental movements toward a goal man you can move your timeline your reality to another reality where you perceive yourself selling out madison square garden you might not be able to manipulate time hard enough to get yourself there but you are shifting the reality every single time you make an incremental movement every single time you get up early to work out every single time you do an open mic that's the mentality and you see how it drives you crazy but it can drive you to do amazing things with that craziness <laughs> so always tell yourself that it's going to go well and tell yourself where you want your future to go and kick your future's ass there ahead of you with a rifle to the back of its head <laughs>
This is going to bring us to chapter 11, flashbacks. This chapter was about how Joan basically has PTSD, she says, and she's still unstable, even though she has all that success. And like I was saying, the 1950s was another world. It was probably a much more alienating process to try to be a stand-up comedian in that era. And as we learned from last month's book, Mind of the Market, being a non-conformist is mentally traumatic. So yeah, this was probably pretty hard on Joan. And a couple quotes I liked from this chapter was how she said, If you must go into the arts, go into them for yourself alone. Because embarrassment and disappointment are in the air that you breathe. Yeah. <laughs> every failure I have is public. Every fucking thumbs down I get, every bad comment I get is out there on the internet for everybody to see. If you're gonna go into the arts, don't say, yeah, I'm doing this to create a living for my family. No, you want to be able to make money telling jokes on stage. That's okay. It's the coolest job ever. You gotta work to have it. You can see towards the later half of the book, it's like Joan is just like shoving all of her tips out there. But then this is the best part of the show. She was also saying how talent almost always makes it. and But talent, we learned in Outliers, is .0000001. And it's usually born into a hut in Africa. <laughs> so talent usually makes it unless neurosis shines through. And hard work can rival talent, you know, when talent doesn't work hard, the old fucking saying... Hard work can get you there. You gotta lean into your work. There's motivation on every level. You could fucking tell yourself the Kevin Hart story. Yeah, I'm gonna open mic for 18 years and then it's gonna work out for me. Sure. You see it even on your own local levels. This The Denver kid, I saw miking for seven years. I got to see him in the blow-up process. That's awesome, man. And it gave everybody in our scene a little bit of hope. Was Joan hard work and talent? Who knows? So Joan got to do some army bases and some, like, she was able to give back with her comedy towards the end of her career as well. She went to Pearl Harbor. And remember, one of Joan's first working bits was about Pearl Harbor. So it comes for, how beautiful is that, how her comedy career comes full circle in the end. She also went to Tokyo and Hiroshima to do some gigs. And in this flashback chapter 11, she has her second breakdown where like she cut off all of her hair and she said it was because she was having these flashbacks, all the extreme highs and lows of her careers. She was remembering how she was freaking suicidal at times and she, how she admitted that she was using suicide as a weapon to make people who underappreciated her like value her. She's a psychopath. <laughs> if somebody bought that shit to me, I'd be like... What do you want me to say? The party doesn't stop when you're gone. This isn't Shakespeare. Oh, you need to feel bad that I feel sad. Don't fucking kill yourself. You're going to miss out. I think I just have too much FOMO to kill myself. <laughs> Joan said, though, during this breakdown, she made it as far as eating a whole bottle of aspirin. But she couldn't ever swallow all the pills because whenever Joan had to take a pill, she would put it in an Oreo like a dog. <laughs> she was saying, no, no, I'm fucking eating a million Oreos before I die. Chocolate's pretty good. I don't really want to die. So even comedians want their death to be the biggest laugh. You got to always exit on a punch. Me, I spend a lot of time at the zoo. I'm hoping I get stampeded by an elephant. <laughs> So Joan's pretty sad again, resting on her support unit, but she gets a break. She does a telephone sketch with Michael McWhitney, which was another thing that revived her career and then pads her wallet. She could tour from that for a while. You're already a comic, Joan. You just do a good interview and then you could go friggin' tour for a while. The point of this chapter, though, is you never know where the next break is coming from. So keep your head up. 
And this will bring us to chapter 12, a stop at Second City. Joan went over to Chicago. She's just trying out new things here. I mentioned this in the About the Author, but she's over at Second City with Al Arkin and Bernie Sohn. She got her audition in like 1965-ish. And then she said her mom went to one of her improv improv shows and saw her mom was like, sweetie, it's not too late to marry a nice lawyer. <laughs> Meanwhile, Joan, she's one of the most accomplished comics in the country, and her mom's like, sweetie, I think it's time for you to do something else. And her mom got through to her, we see at the end of the book. But within Joan's birth apparatus at this moment in time, it was too late to abort this thing. This career that she gave birth to, it's got legs. It's too late to abort it. <laughs> And it goes to show, like, she's made thousands, she's made hundreds of thousands of dollars around the country making people laugh. And the show that her mom goes to, she eats a bag of dicks. And then her mom wants her to quit her passion. That's basically how it goes. And so Joan did some time over at Second City, and she gets to learn a lot about improv. And she was saying, spoiler, how even top-level improv is 50% planned. Or it has been used before, at least. Because, think, you do the same shows every night. Same guy, uh, member from the audience, give me a place. Uh, a bar. So you just do the improv scene that you know works at the bar. She's saying 50% of improv as high as Second City is doing this. And that's kind of why comics don't really respect improv. And because you have a fucking team up there on stage, where are your balls? Joan starts dating around to try to get into alternative scenes and on different people's shows, which works. This is how comics sell themselves. I'm sure that works a lot on the girl's side. But she said this was the closest thing to hooking she ever considers doing because she was hoeing around for spots. Let's be real here. But she liked Chicago different from New York. She liked them both. But because they were real people in Chicago. You've heard this before. Everyone in New York is there because everyone is trying to take their bite out of the Big Apple. But in Chicago, it's like Midwestern people who meet up with their friends and get drinks. Have families and lives and dogs and yards. <laughs> And Nicky is finally out of show business here. He went on to be a VP at an ad agency, and she considers the telephone line her new umbilical cord to him. And they're calling each other all the time, even though she's dating around, so he's doing the boyfriend work while they're doing the dirty work on her. <laughs> Joan puts in her two years at Second City and she's ready to head back to New York and th she thinks she's going to finally conquer New York. She wants to go take the comedy throne there now. That's what a lot of people do, man. Even the greats. This is how it works. People start from all over the country and then you go try to get your piece. It's a very common comedy career trend. Chapter 13 here. Bite of the Big Apple. She is Cinderella the morning after the ball. She had all the accolades of the second city, but she's now back in the New York trenches doing her walk of shame in the glass slippers. And Joan is kind of paying it forward at this point in her career. She's taking younger comics around to other open mics that Nikki was taking her to now that he can't because he's at an ad agency every night. There was no destination. She wasn't looking for a superstar. She was just help, looking to help the next generation. And she's doing this while she is struggling to translate her second city skills into a standalone act. 
and her reflex was to find a mentor to reshape her but she's beyond that she's like in her 40s you're a comic you can't be looking for managers anymore you're there joan you've been taught all that you can joan it's just like i just read siddhartha he went to all the monks all the brahmins in his society he had to stare at the river. He had to figure out the truth for himself. You can't be taught anything more at some point. You got to learn it for yourself. That's what Joan is saying. It's a birth. Just like one of the best tales to have ever been written and told Siddhartha. Joan started working aside Lenny Bruce a little bit, which made her feel comfortable going up on stage dirty. And she's getting a little bit more comfortable in her career again. So it looks like even at the highest level, you're going to hit your peaks, your pits and peaks. And I guess that's the beauty of a comedy career. There's no plateau. If you are plateauing, that probably means you're not doing something right. And being in this higher echelon back in New York around Lenny Bruce, she was able to learn that outrage can be therapeutic or cathartic. You're letting all this out, and she's saying it's helping her get to new levels again. And so Joan is really getting her bite of the big apple here. And this is going to take us to chapter 14, which was in the times of a comedy drought. And her act is her therapy, Jones says. And she's making a career from her therapy. Some people get lost in a video game as their therapy. Imagine getting paid to do what you love. That's the main goal for a lot of people. And now what makes you unhappy can make someone else laugh. Joan does the New York Second City chapter for a while. I'm going to start going quicker towards the end of the show because Joan, this was not one of my, <laughs> you could tell by now, this was not one of my favorite books. Joan was fucking complaining the whole time. <laughs> I feel like I'm married to her after, but there were a lot of good comedy tips here. Joan's doing Second City, New York. She dates some government worker on the Upper East Side. She gets to write and watch the sunsets over the Hudson in New Jersey from his apartment. And I really didn't care to read these Sex in the City chapters, but here I fucking am. So I'm going to be skimming over these. So this rich guy, Michael, proposed, and she said yes. But it winds up that he's gay, and she was his beard, basically. No wonder he was just letting her chill at his apartment and write and do nothing else. Obviously, the dude was not feeling you, Joan. So he fades out. The story keeps going on. That's what I'm saying. Pointless love stories throughout this whole comedy book. The Vietnam War starts, though, which was the real part of this chapter. And it's basically like a comedy drought. No young men want to go out and laugh at shit in the clubs in the middle of the night. They're getting shot in rice patties because nixon so trump maybe calm down a little bit with this iran thing so i can pursue a dream instead of go try to fight towel heads it's the vietnam war people are doing like psychedelics at coffee houses so people are wanting to hear music they want comedy peppered in less and less and joan is now sitting on the bench in new york with richard pryor dick cavett george carlin david fry woody allen all of these people were hopping on the stage, but stage time is fucking drying up because there's a war going on. Same time, Joan's kind of done with Second City because you can't break the fourth wall. It's not real. <laughs> and that's one of the most helpful tools in comedy to be like, wow, I just fucking stepped on that joke. And people are like, oh, good. He's aware that he just sucked a dick. And so since the Vietnam War is going on, clubs are what fuel a good comedy scene and like i said nobody's going to the clubs so there is no comedy scene 
It's about creating an atmosphere. That's what I was saying before. In the back of the stacks, it feels like a show, man. One kid will always pick out a random book and start making jokes about it for the night. It's a good experiment. It just gets them comfortable ranting on a random topic that he picks a book of. Anyway, everybody is hungry for stage time. So if you create a good atmosphere, no matter where the hell it is... It's going to get more people involved in the subculture, which is then going to increase how good the scene is. And it's going to make a comedy boom rather than this comedy drought that Joan experienced firsthand. We're on to the second to last chapter here, rightfully named, The Clock is Ticking. So as Joan gets older, her managers tell her that she's better suited for a writing position than a solo act. And it wasn't until this point of her career when she was already doing late night shows, Joan got her first major review. (laughs) And it was from a kid at a school paper. (laughs) But nowadays you have angry leftists who will write an article about a tweet that you made to try to get you cancelled. Go find something better to do. This uh, little high school kid like broke Joan's heart because nobody took the time to write a piece about her before. And so Joan's dating. She breaks up with a second love of her life. She considered this guy. But she also gets to headline now with Dick Cavett and Rodney Dangerfield. And she was saying how she didn't like Rodney (laughs) because he's one of the bullies of comedy. He was saying how it's only fun winning if you get to see one of your friends lose. (laughs) Which isn't always true with comedy because in comedy competition is really good. You want to walk into this open mic and say I'm going to be the funniest one here tonight. At some of the mics here they do $5 to the best set. So it's a good way to try to get the most laughs for the night but you got to see rodney's point here how sabotage he was the kind of dude it's i don't care to just see you fail i kind of want to make you fail because it's going to be funnier than whatever garbage you were going to say on stage so sabotage isn't fair but it's definitely funny and there are maybe it's just because denver is small enough of a scene but it's like fair heckling like the comics will get involved in each other's sets it's not every single night it's basically just if you're eating a dick and you don't know where you're jumping around with your words or something another comic will jump in and it gives you a chance to practice your defense because in real clubs when you're on the road like joan is saying you're gonna have the real drunk assholes so there is some like fair heckling that people do here but no one's as malintentioned as rodney dangerfield it sounds like (laughs) like the sabotage of the fellow acts on the show But he also taught her some valuable tools, like you gotta have a hook. And what is Rodney's? No respect. I don't get no respect. You've heard that line before. And so Joan makes her final agent switch. She finds some guy that fulfills her dream of wanting to write for ABC. And she got fired (laughs) from her first show at the Christmas party. How nice of them. Because the show is canceled. So they told them on the biggest holiday of the year. And so Joni is ready to send it home here. Chapter 16, The Comedy Lifestyle. Her car breaks down on the way home from New Jersey, New Year's Eve. She's driving back into the city, (laughs) and it's snowing out. So instead of taking in the snow over the world-famous skyline, she starts to think, there's no way out of this comedy thing. She wants a husband, and she wants somebody to tow her car home. This is just a bad situation. She chose to write about it as her book as a breaking point, but it seems like a moment of weakness to me. (laughs) Was this all just a story of Joan not wanting to work and finding a sugar daddy? 
or can you try to end this book like somebody who actually loves comedy, Joan? Artie fucking Lang is in New Jersey with a collapsed nose pumping gas so that he can tell jokes on a stage at night. <laughs> and just because you ran out of gas in New Jersey after doing a gig, you want to quit? What the fuck are you talking about? Buckle up. Artie doesn't need to tell you. As long as you can look people in the face, you can do comedy. This is why Steve Martin has no excuses, man. He's a fucking great-looking dude, too. He's like 80 years old, white fox. Where have you been, man? You're making a comedy school, but you haven't been on stage in 20 years? Hombre, slow down. What kind of experience are you passing on? Obsolete experience. This comedy thing is a lifestyle. If I won the lottery tomorrow, the first thing I would do wouldn't be to hide on some Southwest Pacific Island. I wouldn't buy a Mustang and do a cross-country road trip. I would get on stage night after night until the money runs out and I have to go back to work. Happiness is responsibility, not money or some Jewish guy who will put you up in a house while he works, Joan. We see that there's no escape. Happiness is the responsibility. And you see, instead of career responsibility, which I've read Jordan Peterson, a clinical psychologist, wrote 12 Rules for Life. It's about how the reward system for your brain responds much better to taking on responsibility, making you happy, not to resulting in an oxytocin release, whether it be drugs or love. <laughs> when you're with your boyfriend, you're just tripping, man. You're just getting high off each other. You're enabling each other to do nothing and make goo-goo eyes at each other instead of fucking getting something done. <laughs> so instead of career responsibility like men fucking bury themselves up to the neck and kill themselves overworking themselves with women default to love and um if you're okay with defaulting your happiness a to love and then b to another person's love mm, maybe that's why a lot of housewives are taking xanax and fucking antidepressants nowadays and maybe this is why continuing your grind at the highest level is so admirable and not looking for excuses this is why fucking joe rogan is that guy right now it's a perfect picture man you want to look at what you want to idolize that guy puts the work in he's at the highest level he could pull a dave Chappelle. he could disappear from the face of the earth and show up in comedy clubs unannounced no he is still making shows for people every single week selling out stadiums every single month the truth hard work shines through and it gets respect from people comedy is the most rewarding job and just because your car broke down she's ready to forfeit all the work she's done in her whole life in comedy there's no boss to tell you to push the car we learned today to push it the extra mile or take a bus home and get on stage tomorrow it has to be pursued from within this is why nobody falls into show business nobody falls into pushing their car to a bar to wait two hours to be called on stage to do an open mic that doesn't just happen in this last chapter joan said she learned a sixth sense throughout her comedy journey and you know what that was she didn't learn how to manipulate electricity she didn't learn how to read minds she can't fly joan learned how to keep fucking going perseverance you learn not to quit that's all it is man that's what i'm saying this thing is a marathon you could get to the highest levels in anything if you are putting smart work in and you don't quit so it's the 70s here joan is writing for abc 
and she gets invited on Johnny Carson. Her new agent tells her as soon as she gets off stage, congratulations, Joan, you killed it out there. You are never going to make under $300 a week for the rest of your life. And her years of calloused over armor, she knew not to believe him. That, you know, you always got to keep your guard up as a comic. You don't fucking believe this guy. I'm going to have to keep working forever. Yeah, I'm going to work till I die. But this is what kept her real. This is what keeps a lot of comics real even though they're multi-millionaires and not real people anymore they're adored by the public and they don't turn into johnny depp a weirdo who just compulsively spends money you have that suit of armor as a comedian you're a real fucking person (laughs) and so for joan (laughs) this is the ultimate payoff at the end of the book she said the best thing wasn't going on johnny carson that night even better was still going into her 6 a.m. writing job the morning after Carson, just smiling, sitting there in her seat. And technically now, as a writer, you're not allowed to go and do your own jokes because the company ABC, in this case, wants to harvest your thoughts. They want all of your ideas to be yours. You're not allowed to go to stand-up if you're a writer for us. That's not in every case, but it was back here. And so Joan didn't let ABC take away her lottery ticket. She was still going out there on stage, and she won her lottery, man. She got invited on Carson, and she sold out clubs until the end of her life. She held on to her lottery ticket. Her value was finally undeniable. Co-workers were patting her on the back, and then finally the boss exploded. Because this guy trapped in his stupid fucking tie and his loafer shoes he puts on every single morning knows he doesn't have control of this young girl anymore. She is free. Her value is undeniable. And knows in this office just sitting there, bitch, say whatever you want to me. I know you can fire me. You can do whatever you want. And then after the explosion at this writer table, Joan said... I think I'm going to have to take my skills elsewhere. And the final joke in the book was another guy in the room went, I think you're making a big mistake, Joan. (laughs) Perfect fucking timing. Pissed off boss that this girl just proved her value and he doesn't own her anymore. It relieved all of that tension in the room of a homicidal boss about to pop off on Joan. And you can't ask for better timing than that. There was a epilogue, but that was just about how she literally ended the book when she got married, which is something only a chick would do, (laughs) and why she's going to be our only woman author. Because imagine if Murray Rothbard ended his writings as soon as he got married. The inevitable libertarian revolution that frees all of us Americans would never happen if he stopped his book. (laughs) Luckily, there wasn't anything too high value on the line here in Joan's book. And I can finally put this one up on the bookshelf. And thank you guys for tuning in for Nick's nonfiction, Enter Talking. Thank you guys for indulging in a personal topic that I really enjoy. As you heard today, comedy's been a safe space in my mind growing up and a really big stress reliever in my life and is now my most important pursuit. I fucking love this grind, man. I'm staying at the comedy. I'm one year in. That's more than 90% of the people that make it. Like I'm saying, I see these kids come and go at the mics. I'm thinking we'll do this probably once a year just so I could give you guys an update on, you know, everything that's going on in my comedy life. Did I share the story about how I got fucked up on stage? 
I think it was like last Memorial Day. I was out drinking and I didn't just want to fucking like go home and go to sleep. So I was like, all right, yeah, I'm going to go do an open mic. I'm drunk as shit, but who cares? I'm, I'm awesome at this thing. And I was only a couple months in and I ate dick, dude. I like didn't remember my set. I was stumbling over my words. I tried to do some fucking crowd work with a guy. And that was the only time I made people laugh because I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm too drunk to even do crowd work. And that was because I broke the fourth wall and made fun of myself. That was one of my worst bombs. The next guy that got on stage, the first thing he did, he crossed his feet, put his left arm straight out, and tried to lean on the mic stand. He fell over and took the mic stand down with him. Immediately, everybody forgot about me just bombing my drunk ass off. There are people that go on stage drunk out of their mind every single night. But everybody was laughing at this kid who just busted his ass on complete accident falling over a mic stand. Where I voluntarily went and embarrassed myself. So you gotta remember it could always be worse. And then, what was my best mic? Yeah, I definitely do have a best mic of the year. It's going to be related to bringing... <laughs> which I'm going to save that story for myself. A night of bringing a female friend to the show. Having a wild good set. I'm never going to say I killed because I'm fucking a year in, but good set and then the most fun end of the night bringing someone who's not accustomed to the comedy culture showing them your world and them loving it <laughs> so you're gonna hit some pits and peaks if you guys want to get involved in comedy i'm happy i got to share some of my advice and experience with you guys as well today and we'll do this once a year a little bit of an update of my comedy stories my pits and peaks throughout the year i'll give to you just like that and if you want to see some material as for right now i'm just doing once a year i'm putting an instagram clip up of me doing some stand-up you could go check up now i have a part of my old toilet bit is up on my instagram obviously further into comedy you see the theater act guys put a minute bit up on their instagram every week i'm a fucking nobody i just started so there you go. Take your week a year. I'm <laughs> I'm doing a comedy podcast and we got hairy shit. A nightly comic is going up to a community of 10,000 listener followers. And that's trickling over here into Nick's nonfiction. The air of comedy is <laughs> well and alive. We are giggling from this month to the next. So thank you guys for doing Joan Rivers Enter Talking With Me. And this is going to bring us into September. That is right. We are going to be finishing up Q3 nice and strong. September is the month that you go back to school. So get your motherfucking thinking caps on it is time for the ebb and flow of the show next month we will be reading nick bostrom's super intelligence this is a book about a future ai robot society we are getting straight up taken over next month <laughs> are they here what do we do when we are not the only intelligent life form that shares this earth nick bostrom a highly published scientist this is definitely the most fact-based and book with the most studies that we will have so a super ebb to flow with the show we're going from my what was least favorite book about romance to hard science about our future and if the government does have an ai telling them how to run these elections and how to run the censorship of facebook so if you are into artificial intelligence, if you are into robots or anything futuristic and cool, I have done the deep dive and research. 
I have read and annotated Nick Bostrom's studies for this upcoming month of September, so do not miss it. Bring your sim chips ready to be uploaded with some fun knowledge. And thank you guys so much one more time for taking this emotional journey with me, which was Enter Talking and Talking Stand-Up Comedy with your host here on Nick's Nonfiction, Nick Munez. I will see you all next month with a brand new episode. I love you. See you. Peace.